Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, and our Inside the Sports Car Paddock show. Yes, you might be able to hear the smile on my face. It has been, I don't know, almost three months since our last episode of Inside the Sports Car Paddock went up. It is meant to be our weekly short-form interview show across a variety of sports car paddocks. And as always, we lead off with our friend Jeff Brown, our dear friend Jeff Brown, one of the world's great, most experienced, and just most practical race engineers. And that is exactly what we've done here. Have to admit, don't want to lie or cheat, Jeff and I recorded this in September when we fully intended to post an episode. And then we got really busy moving in all kinds of things and just having to look at areas of time efficiency, having to step back from inside the sports car paddock for a couple of months was necessary. So apologize for those who looked forward to Jeff's weekly educational contributions and also the great stuff, whether it's from IMSA paddock and folks that have shared updates, or in this case, many interviews supplied by my friends and partners in podcasting, dailysportscar.com and Graham Goodwin. So we lead off here with Jeff and our topic might be of interest is on do it yourself, call it grassroots level aerodynamics. Pretty heavy if we're talking what type of racing, more on the GT touring car production-based angle, knowing that prototypes really aren't much of a thing on the SCCA, NASA, or similar level. But that's what we got into here. So primarily talking about do-it-yourself arrow, what you need, what you want, what you're looking for, how to do some things, all courtesy of Jeff, who's just, it's a beautiful, big and beautiful mind. And then we move into a series of interviews, first being the ACO's top technical man, Vincent Beaumanil, technical director, frankly, for all that we do with the ACO and the FIA World Endurance Championship regulations. Speaking with Vincent, that was a conversation Graham had about hypercar. What's coming next year is the brand new top category and formula there. A little bit of uh, question marks and confusion, maybe, on some recent communications out of the ACO and WEC. So that is where Vincent and Graham focus their time. And then we close with five interviews from the recent FIA Champions Celebration held with drivers, title winners. So we kick off with following Vincent. The amazing Jackie X, the original Mr. Lamont. He is followed by his successor, Mr. Lamont, Tom Christensen. Then we go to Martin Brundle, then one of my heroes, and amazing to call him a friend, Hans Stuck. And we close with just truly amazing, the first among these gents in this category, Bob Gerritsen, a Bay Area man here, done pretty amazing things on the Porsche front. And so we close with a short conversation with Bob. Ah, uh, just delightful stuff. So, 
from Jeff Brown to Vincent Bomanil, Jackie X, Tom Christensen, Martin Brundle, Hans Stuck, Bob Gerritsen. This is a bumper, bumper lineup for the return of Inside the Sports Car Paddock, all brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. It is Inside the Sports Car Paddock, which means we're going to start off by getting ourselves smarter in the brain, courtesy of my pal Jeff Brown in the lovely city of New Orleans. New Orleans, yeah. I'm hanging out here and uh, on my way back from the Homestead Friday Challenge race, a little um, night at the Monday night football game to see the Houston Texans probably not beat the Saints, but we can hope. We're hoping. (laughs) So normally, Jeff, the topics we discuss on an engineering standpoint some something technical we often delve into the minutiae of zillion dollar pro racing cars could be an indy car could be a prototype a big gt vehicle we're gonna do that but we're actually not going to start there this week's topic is going to be aero tuning and figured since you and i have pretty deep backgrounds with either home-built things or just vehicles that were not off-the-shelf spec, call manufacturer A and order part number B, and you just bolt it on and you look at the lovely spreadsheet or otherwise uh, to see exactly what it's going to do. You and I have a fair amount of background in, aha, we have a shear, we have a brake, we've gone down to the local metal supply joint and gotten sheets of aluminum, or otherwise, let's cut it and bend it and drill it and bolt it on to the fender of the thing or whatever it is. Let's start with aero tuning, more of a do-it-yourself mindset for those running their cars. I'm thinking probably more sedan, uh, mm-hmm. could be a GT-style thing, but something more in the SCCA club racing or NASA. You're going to go do some solo stuff where front traction, front grip is often the thing you're working for and trying to find the most. Where should we start? Yeah, it's uh, it's great, and and as you point out, it's it, you can do some pretty powerful things pretty cheaply. So, front grips almost <clears throat> like you said, uh, what you're looking for. And um, well, let's start. There's a few things we can do, and I'll just get uh, I'll just explain a couple items that you can build and and try, and it won't cost you much to try them. So, at the very front of the car, most production-based sedans have some sort of bumper and that bumper is some height off the ground and what what happens is as you drive down the road obviously you get air underneath the bumper underneath the car and it that air slows down because of the radiator and the frame and the steering rack and the suspension components all that air gets slowed down creates a high pressure underneath the car and tends to lift the car up or lighten the front of the car, which makes it understeer because the tires aren't pressed into the ground as hard now because you have this big aerodynamic high pressure underneath the car. So one of the simple things you can do is just try to stop some of that air from getting underneath the car. And a simple vertical aluminum sheet, um, valence or 
it's not really a spoiler, but more of a vertical valence that just is riveted to the bottom of your bumper that goes straight down toward the ground as close as you can get it without having it being rubbed off or bent when you put on the brakes or the car rolls. But if you can just extend the bottom of your bumper closer to the ground, you're going to have less air under the front of it and you'll have less high pressure and you'll make more front downforce. And you can do that with a strip of aluminum, some rivets, and just lower the bumper down. Super, super simple. The next thing you could do is as that air passes under the car, it packs up in the engine compartment if it's a front engine car or the front of the car, it packs up in there. And if we can prevent it from getting there with that vertical spoiler um, extension at the front, or if we can extract that air, it will be better. Because as the air gets in there, if we can give it a nice path to get out from underneath the car, so it's not pressing up uh, and, and making lift, that's an advantage as well. So one of the ways that that can be done really easily is with what's known in the racing world as an S flap. It doesn't really shape like an S. I have my theory on, uh, it was invented or maybe not invented, but, um, we first coined it from a guy by the name of Sam Garrett, who was an engineer who designed the kudzu camel light cars, the amazing Sam Garrett. The amazing Sam Garrett, super smart guy, got to work with him for a long time at Jim Downings. And and um, we just called it an S-flap because Sam came up with it. I'm sure, you know, he will tell you, no, I didn't invent it. It wasn't mine. It's been there a long time. But it's kind of known in racing now as an S-flap. And so what it is, is it's a, it's, if you picture the, let's say you're looking at the side of the car at the front wheel. You have your wheel fender arch that goes around the wheel. The front edge of that, if you make a vertical, well, actually it's a horizontal gurney flap, basically, that comes out from that front edge. So if you were, it goes all the way to the bottom of the front edge, leading edge of the fender arch and goes up to Oh, maybe three quarters of the way, maybe to the top of the tire. And now if we go around and stand at the front of the car and look at the side of it, you would see maybe a half inch strip sticking out from the fender that sticks out toward the side of the car. So what it amounts to is, is the air comes around the front of the bumper goes, is going to now pass past the tire. It hits that strip of metal that's sticking out from the fender and acts just like a gurney on a rear wing where it trips the air to the outside of the car, creates a low pressure behind it. And that's right in front of the tire. Now there's a low pressure there. So the high pressure that's built up inside the wheel well, that's lifting up your car is now being extracted into this low pressure region and out of the fender so you don't have as high a pressure in the fender well lifting up the front of your car you can rivet that to you know it's a little strip maybe an inch wide half an inch sticks 
into the fender well, you rivet it to the inside of your fender, and away you go. Cost you, you know, ten dollars to build, and it will absolutely make more front downforce. Super simple, super cheap, very, um, very effective on almost any car. I mean, we run them on everything from anything with fenders. Uh, you will see those S flaps on um, top field drag car. I mean, I'm sorry, funny cars to uh, sedan touring cars. Um, just because it works, it's cheap, relatively low drag. Um, so those are two quick and simple things that uh, anybody can do, and you don't have to have a big budget. I think the the main takeaway here. We're talking about aero tuning, more sedanish, uh, GT touring car type thing here, more on the, the home front than the big pro racing level. It's to think of the front of that car like a parachute facing the oncoming air. There's all manner of things coming into the engine bay, uh, things that get thrown around cause lots of drag, cause lots of lift. And so it's not just a case of, well, let's remove the, let's remove the hood. Boy, that'll just allow everything to vent out properly. It's not, we're not going to go that far, but to Jeff's point, whether it's the S flap, whether it is venting the back of the fenders, whether it is just trying to find creative ways to take that air that is coming into the front of the car hitting a lot of solid things, slowing it down, causing turbulence, causing drag, also causing lift. If you can do, whether it's big things or small things, do something to allow that turbulent, lifty air, very technical term there, Jeff, um, (laughs) do something to try and help it out, help to extricate that problem. Think of it like a caged animal. That's causing all kinds of problems at the front of the car. And you're looking for ways to open a door to let the thing out. Uh, exactly. That, that is you know, going to be a huge help, whether it is improving your front grip, improving your speed, your ability to make hopefully impressive speed, not having to fight the air as much to cut through it. Also beneath the car as well, which you mentioned, Jeff, if you can discourage air from going beneath the car, and causing turbulence there and slowing you down there there's a lot of smart things are different from a splitter a splitter yes. is a, a very unique item uh, that is a lot different than what we're talking about here of just simply trying to extend down from the bumper to discourage maybe we should talk a little bit while we're sticking on the do-it-yourself front we do mm-hmm. see a lot of folks show up for it's a time attack it's a whatever it is with a splitter attached to their sedan, their GT, their whatever it is. Let's talk about that a little bit because we're talking aero yeah. tuning. Splitter is a very powerful tool. I'm just not sure everyone knows what it's really meant to do and how to think about creating and does you know building one at home, which folks right. tend to do themselves as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure everyone understands. I know folks see, oh, everyone's got a splitter. I need to make one and bolt I it to the one. car. Uh, what is it there for, and what are some of the things that should be considered uh, while coming up with that design? Yeah, well, it's a it's a 
relatively cheap thing to do. It takes a little more engineering than the things we just talked about. But so first of all, just so everybody understands, a splitter would be a horizontal surface that sticks forward, usually forward of the leading frontmost edge of the bodywork. So like a lip that sticks out um, uh, from the front of the car. I think the British will refer to something like that as a tea tray at the front. You know, it's, it's, a, it's this vertical surface that is at the bottom of the car. <clears throat> and the way it works is it, it well, it gets, gets its name because it splits the air. The air that, that uh, comes to the car, some of it goes above the splitter and over the bumper, over the hood, the windshield, and to the back. Some of it goes below the splitter and underneath the car, and then hopefully cleanly and smoothly exhausted out the sides of the car so as not to make a lot of, a, a lot of um, lift. So to remember the basics everybody needs to remember, I think, when you're trying to visualize what's going on. And, and visualizing aerodynamics can get you in trouble. It gets me in trouble all the time um, because it's, it's super complex. We talked about CFD and how that works in some episodes before. And so, um, and the, my inability to be able to predict that. But one thing I can say is slow air, air that's moving slowly, is high pressure. Fast air that's moving quickly is low pressure. So if you picture air rushing toward the splitter at the front of the car and the air that goes over the top of the splitter pretty much immediately contacts the bumper, the vertical surface of the bumper, and is slowed down. So you got this air rushing, it hits the front of the splitter, it goes up over it a little bit. All these molecules of air bump into the vertical bumper of the car and slow down well that's high pressure sitting on top of this splitter the air that goes underneath the splitter continues to flow quickly and if you have your s flaps and other ways to get the air out it flows under the car and keeps flowing quickly under it and out through the fender well and it's fast air so you have a low pressure underneath the splitter and a high pressure on top of the splitter and that's exactly what you want because you have downforce on top of the splitter pushing it down. You have low pressure underneath. You've created a wing, which is exactly how a wing works. Uh, high pressure on top, low pressure on bottom. You have you make downforce. So we even call splitters. We'll call it uh, a lot of times. A lot of sports car people will call it a front underwing um, because it works like a wing. It doesn't even have to be shaped like a wing. So it's better if it is, and then it gets very complex on how the wing works, the underside of the wing works within ground effect and, and at various splitter heights, and you get pitch sensitivity and all sorts of complex things that are, can be a problem. But if you just make a flat surface, you're still going to get a big benefit um, by slowing that air down on top of the splitter and pushing down on it. And if you make the splitter stick out further from your car, you just have more surface area for that high pressure to push down on and you'll make more downforce. So you'll have things like splitter extensions that you can put on. I need more front downforce. You add a one inch splitter extension and make your splitter longer. So it 
pushes down, has more surface area to push down on. So that's why you see splitters on every, uh, every sports car, sedans, everything, because it's just um, super, super efficient way to make downforce. Let's go, Jeff, to the more pro-tuning end. So if we're thinking of, say, the Nissan DPI that you're engineering in IMSA for Core Autosport or the Ferrari Challenge type cars that you're running that are very fast GT vehicles that do have wings, they have splitter, they have some form of tuning devices that you can bolt uh, to the front bumper, outer edges mm-hmm. of the front bumper, uh, some sort of good stuff that you can use to manipulate how the car behaves from an aerodynamic balance standpoint, independent of mechanical balance. Obviously, the two are always interrelated, but right. just from a tuning standpoint here, let's talk about some of the tools that you would use, GT, prototype, something, even you know lower, I should say lower, but uh, more basic touring cars as well. Things that folks engineering right now, even driving right now, might be trying to think about, hmm, I hear about this aero balance. I feel this aero balance. I might not fully understand all the basic concepts, even some of the terminology and some of the smarter tuning tools to use how to achieve aero happiness. Yes. Yeah. And, and happiness is a great answer because the, it's not all about how much downforce you can make or how little drag you can make. While those are important, the most important thing for go, making fast lap times is aero balance. And that's what makes the driver happy. And balance is we can measure the balance, aerodynamic balance. And we do that with a a number that's called, we call it COP, which stands for center of pressure. And if we can measure that through various sensors that we won't get into now, um, but on our data system that will measure how much force is being produced on the front of the axle, the front wheel, and how much on the rear wheels. And then we can measure, we can calculate where the center of pressure is. So think of it as center of gravity. Everybody understands center of gravity, where the weight would be balanced if you were to balance the car at one point, put, you know, put a jack stand under it, it would balance perfectly at that point. Well, aerodynamics have the same thing. That's their center of pressure or the center of gravity of the aerodynamics. So there's, if you add up all the forces, aerodynamic forces that are being produced on the car, there's one central point between the axles that all those aerodynamic forces um, come to a, to a, a center. And will, we can measure that as a percentage of front. So, we'll have 45% front, we'll call it. The COP is at 45%. That means 45% of our total downforce is on the front axle, 55% on the rear axle. The driver is super sensitive to that. That's what he feels. If it's too far forward, we have too much arrow on the front. When he goes into a high-speed corner, the front will have too much downforce and the rear not enough, and it'll feel like it's going to spin out on him. If it's the other way, if the center of pressure is too far to the rear, the car will have too much downforce on the rear, and you'll turn into a high-speed corner, and the front 
tires won't turn because they don't have enough downforce on them and it'll be very understeery or pushy. Drivers feel that balance, center of pressure balance, much more than they feel the amount of downforce. So that's once we get to the racetrack and we're done designing, or if you have a homologated car or whatever, you're not you're not coming up with new parts. You're just trying to tune that center of pressure balance for the driver the best. We can use, you know, the rear wing's the obvious one. Everybody sees the rear wing. You can obviously change the angle of the wing. If you tip it up more, it's going to make more downforce at the back, which moves the center of pressure back. The, um, you can put, uh, everybody's seen the gurney, which is like a little vertical strip on the trailing edge of the wing. You can put taller ones on, that makes more downforce. You can put shorter ones on, makes less downforce. And each one of those changes, the goal is to change the center of pressure to get it correct for the driver's feel. The, at the front, we can change the splitter, um, maybe splitter extensions. We can put dive planes <clears throat> on the front. Um, a lot of people have seen those little dive planes. They look like little fins that are on the sides of the front leading edge of the nose. Uh, lots of GT cars have them. Lots of, almost every prototype has them. And you can put big ones, small ones. You can put two on them, two of them on. You can put one or none. And it, <clears throat> we're just moving that center of pressure to get the balance right. Each one of those changes we do has a knock-on effect. And almost always, well, I would say always, when you add downforce, you also add drag. And we, you know, the holy grail is something that produces downforce, but no drag. That's kind of like, in engine terms, making more horsepower and getting better fuel economy. It usually doesn't happen. It's very difficult. So if we make put the wing up at the rear because the car's oversteering and wants to spin out and we need the center of pressure to the rear, so we put more wing on, we've now added more drag, and we go slower in a straight line. That's bad. So each one of these changes we make <clears throat> has a efficiency effect. How efficient is it? If it makes 10 pounds of downforce because we added a dive plane, let's say, at the front, and it makes 10 pounds more downforce, but makes 10 pounds more drag, it has a efficiency of one. And we call that L over D, which is lift. It, it comes from airplanes. We really want downforce, but it's lift over drag. It's the ratio of lift over drag. So we're looking for high L over D changes, things that make a lot of downforce or lift, negative lift really for us, but a lot of downforce for low drag. And that's how we'll decide if we need to balance the car. Because we could say we need a little bit more front downforce, center of pressure, move forward. We could do splitter, dive planes, uh, maybe S-slaps, maybe lots of things. We could add little tabs, whatever was allowed by the rules. But we'll pick the most efficient one, the one that has the best L over D, so we can get that downforce the most efficiently. And so that's why sometimes you'll say, well, we need front downforce. We could just take um, rear wing out, might do the same thing. 
And that might be the best answer to balance the car. Because if we take rear wing out, we get the center of pressure where we need it, but we take downforce or we take drag away. So a lot of times you can make a change on the opposite end of the car to get the balance you want because it's more efficient. So looking at the tools you would use to achieve the aero balance needed for whichever road course we might be visiting. I mean, obviously we're headed to Monterey this weekend for the penultimate IMSA round of the year, but looking at the tools you'll have available to yourself this weekend, knowing it's a prototype, but also knowing that for the faster sports cars in the world, many of the same things will be available, whether, you know, could be a GT or even a prototype. I'm sorry, touring car. You obviously have the bits, the top side bits, the flappy bits. You have wings, wing angles. You have gurneys that you can attach to the rear. You can do a variety of things. You can play with, again, it's all rule dependent on the series. So some of, a lot of this is generalisms, but you have your, end plates that you can adjust high, low angled and whatnot. Let's talk about beneath the car though, Jeff, because that's the area that I think not only is it literally not something that folks can see readily or easily, but also something that maybe from a tuning standpoint, folks don't necessarily think to go to first. I mean, obviously plenty do, but it's not always something that everyone thinks of. Aha, need to tune instead of actually adjusting the aero foils or bolting on something to the front of the car or taking something off to achieve that effect, you can do some pretty powerful things beneath the car. Again, depending on rules, yep. if you have a splitter, you might have the ability to add or remove strakes there. You, at the back of the car with the diffuser, might have the ability to add or remove strakes there. You also have ride height, and you have rake I guess between those areas, why don't we close on that? Because, yeah. again, uh, beneath, the stuff you can't see or you have to get on your hands and knees to uh, play with might actually be the smartest area to think of first. Absolutely. It's uh, it's uh, a lot of the things underneath the car, are, changes that you can make, are highly efficient. Uh, they have great L over D numbers. So we go to those quite often and depending on the series and what you're allowed to do you have lots of options or or very few options but we look at the underneath of the car and it is truly and we call that surface the underwing and it is it's a wing underneath the car and i would recommend to anybody that's going to uh what is it now WeatherTech raceway laguna seca this weekend to when they walk around the paddock you'll see a lot of the prototype teams will have their front, the noses, we call it the quick change front, QCF. They'll have that setting in a rack someplace behind their garage area, behind their pit area. Um, To go look at that and look at the underside of it. Don't look at the top side where the headlights and all the stickers and cool stuff is. Look at the underside and look how that is shaped. It's shaped like a wing. It truly has a wing type shape to it and underneath there are some some strakes that are like like straightening veins basically that keep the air flowing straight under the car under the splitter because you don't want that air to make turns because anytime you 
air turns, it creates drag and we don't want drag and it reduces the downforce. So you'll see straightening veins under there. Um, you'll see the shape of the, of the bottom surface of that nose or that splitter um, and compare a, a Mazda to a, a Nissan to a Acura and see how, what the, what the theory is. Um, the same at the back of the car. In our cars, uh, current cars, we have flat, pretty much flat bottoms. But at the back of the car, once you reach the rear axle center line, it has to be flat between the, the bottom of the car has to be flat from axle center line to axle center line. But past that, we can angle up the floor of the car. And that acts as, well, it is a diffuser, but it acts as a wing also. You can picture the shape of the, you know, the floor is flat in the middle of the car, and then it angles up just like the bottom of a wing angles up and that makes downforce as well and you'll see some strikes again straightening veins that run across that to keep the air flowing smoothly and so how the height of that underwing and the angle of that underwing is just like a regular wing if we want to make more downforce on a regular wing we tip the nose down and raise the rear to make downforce. Well, the underwing of the car, the whole bottom surface of the car is a wing. We can lower the front ride height and raise the rear ride height. And what we've effectively done is tipped our underwing to make more downforce. Um, and it's moved the center of pressure forward. So a lot of times we'll come in and make a ride height change to the front or to the rear. And it is purely to make an aerodynamic adjustment. It's a mechanical adjustment to our suspension that we're doing aerodynamically. And to take that a step further, we'll actually even pick spring rates maybe as an aerodynamic change. Oh, we went stiffer front springs because the arrow was wrong. And people will be like, wow, how does that work? It works because the angle of the underwing changes when you put on the brakes the front goes down, the rear comes up, and when you accelerate, the front comes up, the rear goes down. And so your that center of pressure we talked about earlier isn't always in the same spot. It changes constantly around the racetrack. And if it's changing too much, the driver can't anticipate what his handling is going to be, and he, has to, he slows down because he's not sure if it's going to spin out or understeer. So we might put stiffer front springs to keep it from diving so much and to keep the center of pressure from moving forward so much and changing the handling. You'll hear drivers sometimes talk about pitch sensitivity, and that's what that is. The pitch of the car, the aerodynamics are very sensitive to the pitch of the car. And designers will work hours and hours in CFD and in wind tunnels to reduce that pitch sensitivity by designing the shape of that underwing the front of the car but to design it so it has less pitch sensitivity and that's where you can go look at the different design characteristics by just looking at those parts that people stack in their um their body part racks it's it's pretty interesting but super efficient way to make downforce very complex spend a lot of time in the wind tunnel and in cfd on the underside of the car the part that you know 
you spend more time working on the underside of the car than you do on the top side of the car for sure. That, my friend, I think is a very good opening salvo in aero tuning. I know that obviously we have Monterey this weekend. A few weeks later, we will say farewell to the 2019 IMSA season at Road Atlanta. Yeah. I'm thinking, thinking it might be fun as we start to get into the off season to add a little bit of a inside the sports car paddock. Jeff Brown makes a smarter opening segment tweak and go to a format, not all the time, but as we do in some of my other weekly shows, go to listener Q and a, cause we, yeah, we've it. spent hours upon hours upon hours this year. I think we're up to almost episode 30. We spent wow. a lot of time telling folks things and, trying to edumacate them uh thanks to you i think it might be fun having done that to say all right maybe we said something that piqued your curiosity maybe we haven't covered something you're interested in maybe we'll do a couple weeks who knows if you're uh, in agreement do just some straight up q a i love it i love it i mean that's all i would say 95 percent of our topics have been from listeners who have written you or I and asked us to talk about them, but we do generalize. Um, the only thing I caution everyone on for sending in questions, I, I don't know things like what's the proper front spring rate for a BMW M3 with 300 by 60 by R10 Michelin super comp tires in um, SCCA class B6 rally racing or something i don't know, you know I, I can't help much with that kind of stuff but i can certainly it would certainly be fun to um talk about specifics of you know certain aspects of engineering and how you would attack certain things or even if you have a problem with your car that's doing a certain thing you can talk about some generalized uh areas to look at or to try to uh help you go faster because that's what it's all about Actually, gotta gotta correct Jeff. There, we do actually have answers to any and all such things like that. Oh, it's it's yeah. Just we're going to default to the answer to life, the universe, and everything. It's forty two. So yeah, whatever. What what kind of what kind of tire pressure should I run on my nineteen thirty seven? This that and the other forty two. Uh, spring, what's the optimal COP? 42. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, let's talk polar moment of an 42. Um, so yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that just might be fun because part of this could be, Hey man, I've been driving my thing and it's been an understeering pig and I've tried all kinds of stuff here, you know, and throw some ideas at us about what you've done. And it might also be some of the other stuff. That's a lot of fun. Hey, Jeff what led you to where you are? Where should I start? Or, Hey, Pruitt, uh, what led you into <clears throat> race engineering at some point? And I can tell them <clears throat> that story, which will hopefully be depressing and, um, eventually <laughs> and lead them to becoming a journalist. So other things, right. Exactly. Yeah, no, I think that would be great. Let's, uh, you know, any of those kind of things, uh, you know, from career stuff to, um, things we've done in the past uh would be yeah let's hit it hit, hit it up i love it jeff thank you as always now on a 
quite crackly phone line at the moment uh, from France. Uh, delighted to be joined by Sporting Director of the Automobile Club de l'Ouest, Vincent Bomanil. Good morning, Vincent. Now, um, thank you for giving the time on what's a, uh, a Sunday morning, very much family time, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, I think you and I both agree that perhaps a little clarity is needed on the announcements that have been made over the last couple of days to do with the uh, class we now know will be called Le Mans Hypercar. In particular, Vincent, can you explain the, the philosophy um, of the rule that's now been introduced for this linkage with a car brand? Oh, yes, of course. Um, the first thing I want to say is that uh, we, we need to be very uh, um, uh, linked to and you, you must be very focused on what is written on an announcement. We have introduced uh, uh, um, some rules that will uh, uh, enforce cars to race under an automotive, uh, automotive brand. We speak about the brand. We don't require a manufacturer to commit himself, but um, in the philosophy of Alpine and Horus in LMP2, we believe today that by encouraging this, we will uh, 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 also bring some more support to private teams and also to expand the, the, the field of cars racing. We think that the concept of hypercar basically uh, is to, to have the most extreme car in the world that we see on the roads, and also to provide the, uh, to the fans and the media uh, a field of cars that they can clearly identify as a brand. Uh, we, we know that brands are very popular, and we have introduced this system to encourage this. Then, obviously, uh, uh, in our intention also is to be quite flexible with this because we don't want to introduce two uh, uh, strict parameters of production volumes of whatever, because many, many car brands today are very small volumes in the philosophy of hypercar, and we don't want these small companies very dedicated to extreme hypercar to be out of the game. So this is why uh, we are introduced this principle and will be left at the discretion of the insurance commission as an evaluation. And that, that um, principle of leaving the catch-all with the Insurance Commission presumably is, is left in there for a positive reason, to find a way to get the cars onto the grid rather than to find a reason not to. Exactly, exactly. This is a way to encourage and also to make sure that we have something which is in line with our intention and principles. And the only intention is to provide some support to the team, provide some opportunities of... Uh, securing a nice brand coming on the game, and we feel that our fans and media have a great expectation on this. So, to, to be to be clear here, the the uh, proviso is that a car brand must be linked to every program. What they do with that link is subject to a declaration from the brand, and then subject to approval from the insurance committee. That might be marketing-led, it might be an engine supply, it might be that it's a manufacturer uh, with some kind of alliance with a private team. Yeah, there, there is no uh, specific criteria on this. The final intention is that when you see the car, you understand that this car is the whatever... Uh, Chaseram, uh, uh, Bugatti or Peugeot, whatever, but uh, uh, it will hold the brand and, and we want to encourage 
to design as well. But how people deal together is left at their own uh, uh, discretion, of course. And uh, um, if you see in the philosophy of what uh, Aorus or Alpine are doing in LNP2, uh, clearly we can see here the opportunities that bring to the team. Now, I'd ask the question about Arus and about Alpine. Is this, uh, is this at least in part an encouragement to those brands and maybe to others to look towards hypercar rather than LMP2 in the future? It's, uh, it's, it's not the original intention is not especially for that, but it could be a, a positive effect as well, actually. Yes. Okay, moving on to the kind of smaller brands. It's called Le Mans Hypercar and... Uh, we, we certainly know because we've, we've heard from people like Gordon Murray, we've heard from Brabham, uh, that they're now looking towards Le Mans Hypercar as a possible programme to promote their brands. But before we get into those future uh, possibilities, we've got a couple of other uh, smaller brands, one of which is currently producing road cars, one of which isn't, but has said they, they're going to. Is there anything in the current um, regulations as we now see them that will stop Jim Glickenhaus or indeed uh, Colin Collis from going forward with the programmes that we know they've got under under development? At the moment, there is no uh, no blocking point. As you know, uh, James Glickenhaus is already today uh, building some road cars. So uh, obviously, uh, um, the Jones Commission is aware of that and will... Uh, of the entry when we will have everything together but taking into account the fact that Glickenhaus is producing some road cars so considered as a car brand. Uh, uh, for Colin, I would use the example of the Ford GT. Uh, at some stage we need to be clever and, and help the sport. Uh, you remember the Ford GT was racing before you can buy it on, on, on shops. Indeed. Uh, we would have been, if we would have been uh, stuff i mean for final question to do with next season um we've already heard from you at sebring uh, earlier this year that we're likely to see uh, to bolster the field grandfathered lmp1s where do we currently stand on that will this rule have to apply there as well we know Ginetta clearly are a car brand uh, but uh, do the same rules apply to any uh, teams wanting to come forward with a, with a grandfathered lmp1 at present No problem. Um, congratulations, I guess, to you here for what I think everybody would, uh, would say was a somewhat surprising announcement from Peugeot. And uh, certainly the timing of it seemed to catch everybody unawares. Uh, clearly, Peugeot, now linked with Rebellion, of course, 
um, attracted by the prospect of coming with a hybrid drivetrain, attracted to come to hypercar, but also Vincent attracted by something else which this has got to offer, which is a link to the centenary race in 2023. any specifics because if I did I'm sure you wouldn't be able to answer them but uh, we've now got uh, a lineup of hypercars for season one and in the case of Peugeot for season three and we gather they may depending on the way that program comes ask for maybe a, pot- a potential start at the, the end of season two uh, how healthy is the interest level beyond what we already know Vincent? That's excellent news. Let's talk a little bit about uh, LMP2. You also made the final announcement as part of the uh, communique from the ACO about the package that will apply to have the current LMP2s, if you like, falling into line with the revised performance of the Le Mans hypercars. It will be 30 kilowatts uh, less power. Uh, it will be a spec tyre supplier. Um, just yeah, give us a flavour of the discussions you've had with the LMP2 uh, manufacturers and teams about that those uh, that range of, of measures. Well, uh, the first for sure is that the, the performance of hypercar was the criteria that we had to take into account to define the performance of the P2. It's actually not a big drop in performance. It's quite, uh, uh, I mean, the cars will be quite close from what we have today. Then the second point, for sure, we have been discussing with nearly, I would say, all the LMP2 teams. So it was, it has really been a, a teamwork between teams and manufacturers with us to make the right decisions. Uh, 
taking to taking into account the, the, the technical and the financial aspect. And clearly, uh, the result of that, as you know, is that we are not touching at all at the cars for the, for the chassis rules. It would be exactly the same, which is the, the, the best approach for the team. Uh, and then the, 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 the performance reduction has to be achieved by a combination of parameters because if you are too brutal on one parameter, this will affect too much the category. So here we have a drop of, of power, but uh, if we had dropped the performance only with power, we would have probably faced some um, top speed issues uh, by the cars racing together with the GTE. So with this figure, we still have some cars that uh, in their drivability make the overtaking in the traffic uh, still uh, comfortable for drivers. So the rest of the performance, we have to find it through tires. Uh, and, and, and this is achievable, obviously, only if we have a unique tire manufacturer. So this, this was the main reason. And with this, we have really found a good balance that keeps uh, the LMP2 very close to what we have today. It's a very successful formula for the driver of the team. And we wanted to keep this balance. And by that, by making a combination of engine and tires, we have been able to, to keep this balance very close to what we have today. Okay, two final questions, both about uh, hypercar. The first is a final clarification, which is, uh, and to make it very simple, you are the man that will have uh, the best uh, idea as who's involved, definitely, who might be involved, who is talking about being involved. This change... Sorry, sorry, I didn't hear. Just, uh, the, the, my suggestion is that you, you are clearly a sporting director, uh, fully appraised of exactly who at the moment is interested in coming to Hypercar. Are you aware of a single programme at all that would be negatively affected by the rule set we heard this week? Uh, no, absolutely no. Do you, you, you see this as being something that privateer teams will see as a positive moving forward, correct? Sure, obviously. Uh, final question is this. Um, the other hot topic... Final question. The other hot topic, uh, Vincent, about uh, the top class of endurance racing has been for some time the the fact that we've got these two parallel processes. We've got the process uh, with the ACO, with FIWEC, with Le Le Mans Hypercar. We've got DPI in the United States. Both have had their successes. Both have had their challenges. Are we going to see continued discussions about the potential for those two rule sets to come together in some degree at least? As you know, in 
every day with, with them speaking about our projects and what we do. So we are still in permanent evaluation of how we can uh, uh, make our sport uh, better and, and progressing together and evaluate the future together. But it's the only thing I can say at the moment. Vincent, for the moment, let's leave it at that. I hope we're going to see you in Bahrain in just a few days' time. Well, it'll be a little warmer than it is here in the UK, and I'm sure a little warmer than it is there in France at the moment. Um, Hopefully a little bit of clarity added there. Thanks again for your time. Thank you, Bram. With Jackie X after the FI Hall of Fame for World Endurance Champions. Jackie, that was some event and some real stories from the stage there. Well, there was a lot of story who never exist before because I think it's the very first time that the FIA organized an Hall of Fame for um, the last, I think, uh, 30 years. And it was like being in a family because you, are, you have mixed generation into it. You have young ones, old ones uh, like me. You have a star like uh, Fernando, for example. Uh, yes, we are a large family group, happy to see each other again. And I must admit that the initiative of uh, Jean Todd, the president of the FAE, have been outstanding. Because clearly about racing in, in, in the coming years, a lot of things are questionable. And uh, But the spirit was really... Fantastic, really unique in my point of view and uh, in racing so many progress has been done and it was a lovely opportunity to remind to all of us that uh, the guys who do the job, you never see them. People behind the curtains, either the organization or either making cars, they are the key of all successes. It did strike me as we listened to what was a heartfelt speech from you from the stage that whilst a lot of things have changed since your days as a champion some things don't the teamwork the camaraderie is still the same as it always was well that's one of the nice aspects that you still can see uh, today yes I come from a time in the 70s 60s the 50s and pre-war were even more risky than it was at the time but we never thought about it huh? The thing was to enjoy, to try to win races. And it was a time where every, everyone could do any kind of racing, from saloon, Formula 2, long distance, Formula 1. It was a different time. But uh, you can see the new generations today are really outstanding. They do so well. We look back and we look at what we call now golden eras. And one of the, uh, one of the golden eras certainly was your era in sports car racing in Group C. But as a man who came through that and had such outstanding success, what do you look at now in the modern era and admire and enjoy? Well, you know, at the start I wanted to be a gardener. I never thought I was going to be a race driver. But uh, you're right to say I've been very successful. Uh, I was going to say, unfortunately, no. I'm happy to have survived to it. But now I'm a man almost 75 years old. Um, I'm not the same person anymore. I see it from different point of view and probably I'm much more open-minded than I was when I was 25. But the joy is to see the new generation in our modern life, whatever it's racing or not, the new generation in our society will change this world. I hope so too. 
Jackie, an absolute delight. Thank you. Tom Christensen, yes. the FIA Hall of Fame, World Endurance Champions. It's a room full of legends. Did you enjoy that? Yeah, it's a fantastic room. It's, it's, it's full of people from uh, the best part of motorsport in the world, endurance racing, sports cars. And, um, and then really uh, applauded by uh, the FIA and, and giving uh, a, really a great place in, uh, in our sports history. Um, will, yeah, making uh, inducting us into the Hall of Fame. It's um, it's something which we are all enjoying, and we are enjoying the company. You can hear everything. Uh, everyone is talking. Everyone is respecting each other. Everyone is part of this uh, of this great family. Yes, we want to win races. We want to beat the others badly and drive the cars incredibly fast for for long uh, so in that sense it's um, we share so many uh, so many uh, moments um, and in a way it's kind of endurance racing in kind of two there's the group C time which ended in 1992 and then there was a spell of 20 years where I certainly remember there was no world championship where I did mainly my sports car racing so I can say I'm very very grateful that with Loic and Alan uh, that we could get a world championship in before we had to hit uh, retirement. So that's something which um, today I'm very, very happy for. Just had a quick moment with Bob Garretson, who's the very first world champion honoured here from 1981. Yeah. yeah. Um, Bob, passed on a couple of things. One is two things haven't changed. You're still always on the edge, <laughs> and the camaraderie is still there. Ah, that's, uh, that's, that's well spoken, Bob. And, um, and to see. He was the first on stage, and then just to see the selective and the, the different great champions from um, from the eras are, are running up on the stage, and they are all fit. They are all here. Unfortunately, we uh, we don't have Stefan Belov, uh, but apart from him, um, they were they were all here or could have been here till Fabi understand as. Uh, an issue at home with um, with um, with some illness, but apart from that, it's um, it's it's also very unique and very spectacular in the in our in our sport. And that speaks to something Jackie X said up on stage, where he spoke passionately about the work that's done behind the scenes. The fact that we're in a different age. You spoke also about a significant man we lost in our time, Alan Simonson. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, we still do have 28 of those 29 champions that still could be here. And that does speak, doesn't it, to one major uh, way in which the sport has progressed in yeah, our era. Uh, certainly, and that uh, was uh, certainly, uh, I can only uh, applaud the speech uh, that, um, that uh, uh, Jackie made. It was, uh, it was, it was, was spot on in, in, in many ways. And um, the sport has certainly been safer. There's also the respect. There is this kind of, we are racing hard, but there is a, a camaraderie. There is a bond between us in, in, in endurance racing and in sports car racing, which, which, uh, which you see and which you feel and which we live. And uh, that, that's certainly also, uh, also part of it. 
It has been an, um, the best part of my racing uh, career that has been done in sports car racing, there's no doubt. Certainly you grew up uh, in karting and you, you love the time there, you get all the skills, you get to work, but, but where you are settled back, just speaking to Dr. Ulrich uh, before you, you touched on me, and um, we, uh, we both agree that it's the best time we ever had is, um, is certainly the... The, the <laughs> oh, it's okay. Uh, I feel on there. Rudely interrupting. <laughs> it's, uh, so uh, also Merry Christmas to, uh, to to them. It was a fantastic, fantastic time of uh, of racing. Where what we have uh, what we have done in. Tom Christensen, world champion, multiple Le Mans winner, multiple WC race winner, and now Hall of Fame legend. Thank you very much indeed. Happy to be here. Thanks very much. Martin Brundle, that was some event. Oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? So many famous racing drivers and, and important people in the world of sports car racing being recognized i mean some of us 30 40 years later which um, makes it feel rather unique to say the least so thank you to the fia and uh, and jean todd and everybody for creating this world sports car champions uh, hall of fame and i'm very proud to be in it you're pretty unique amongst this company in that you've got skin in the game still now uh, in the, the current era with Alex coming back and LMP2 being extremely competitive I'm sure got his eye on the potential to step up to a top class ride at some point. I think Alex is absolutely ready now for yeah one of the hypercars. He knows sports car racing very well. He's found the, just the perfect balance. He's got the speed. He's got the fitness. He's, he knows how to work with other drivers and and play the long game so I'd love to see him in one of those type of cars but he's in LMP2 again for, 2000, uh, for 2020 so I'm uh, very happy about that too Tell us a little bit about it in, in your principal area if I'm not being rude about the contrast between Formula One and sports car racing. It was a very different sort of challenge not quite the 24 hour sprint that nowadays is Well I don't ever remember. I think I've done Le Mans nine times and Daytona three or four times, Sebring uh, once, so, and lots of other Spa 24 hours in touring car racing. I don't ever remember not driving the car as fast as I could go given the conditions, the tyres, the fuel load that I had at the time. You, I, I don't ever, I've never known anything other than driving as hard as you could, and that was because somebody would go flat out and finish, so you all had to. So reliability seems a bit better these days than it used to be, but nonetheless, you know, we had five Jaguars at Le Mans, 15 drivers, uh, and actually if you look at the distance covered in a day, it used to be the equivalent of a Formula One season of races. It's an immense undertaking logistically. So I, I, was never, I never left the Formula One paddock thinking, let's go and just have a bit of fun in the sports car paddock because it, it was serious stuff then we had a lot of manufacturers fighting for especially a Le Mans victory um, and, and the world championship it, it was a huge undertaking so I, I don't think it's ever been that different in terms of the level of excellence um, the difference for a driver is you've got to share the car and trust another driver instead of wanting to beat him at every single opportunity and, and, and I think 
that that rung very true tonight and that message came across all evening from drivers up on the stage about that that camaraderie the trust and respect you have for other drivers so I, 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 I never underestimate sports car racing when I was wandering around the Porsche curves at four o'clock in the morning this year with my daughter watching Alex go round it just wows me the speed I, I, People never mention Le Mans as one of the, what's your favourite circuit in the world? Le Mans features very heavily in my top three, certainly top five of all the great racetracks. It's spectacular out there. And the commitment, and when, you, you know, when you've done two or three hours in that, and then you're going to get back in, and I think the year I was lucky enough to be part of the winning team, I did the kind of 12 hours or something in the car. It's, it's, um, it's a serious undertaking. Looking back now, you're a part of what most people regard as being very much a golden era in sports car racing. You've had a couple of stabs of that more recently. The peak of the hybrids certainly felt a bit like that. Where can you see the next one coming from in what's an extraordinary time for the industry right now? Well, I think it's a challenge, isn't it? Formula One's got the same challenge of where, where the motor industry is going. What do you stand for uh, at Le Mans in Formula One? Are you entertainment are you a technical showcase what, are you a business what are you well I think it's a very easy answer your entertainment uh, because if you don't have the eyeballs watching it on the side of the track or online or on TV you don't have the manufacturers you don't have the sponsors so you've got to find a nice balance in there somewhere I think the hypercars are very exciting because they're the sort of cars that end up uh, on the equivalent of posters on the bedroom wall, which are your screensavers or whatever now. Um, as long as I've watched sports car racing, it seems to have always been boom and bust. Uh, manufacturers come, it's exciting, everybody's in, costs run away, doesn't make sense, goes bang, they all pull out. Uh, and I think what it needs is a, some kind of sustainable budget that gives everybody a chance to showcase their brands, their competitive spirit, their technology. You know, and let's be honest, the platform's Le Mans, isn't it? The Le Mans 24 hours energise the rest of the championship as well. That all sounds really easy, doesn't it? But as the as the industry, the car industry, faces the challenge of funding, electric, fuel cell, autonomous cars, I think they're all floundering around. I'm not sure that motor racing decisions are top of their priority list at the moment but I think so I think the World Sports Car Championship or whatever it's labelled as at any given time in Formula 1 has to jump and scream and shout and make sure it's relevant make sure it's noticed in a room that's just dripping with legends and stuck that was that was quite an evening uh, it was an incredible moment you know especially getting good memories back and then seeing all the drivers we have been with, and I like today the span between old and young drivers. for was a couple of generations there, and then shows on the other hand what an important race Le Mans is for everybody. Whether if you're a Formula 1 driver or a champion, you know, one time you want to be a big one, you have to win Le Mans. <laughs> and what, what spoke to me was the camaraderie, the friendships that were born in those years are still very strong now. Absolutely. I mean, when, when you see the guys around here, even the ones you have not driven with as a teammate, you know, you know each other from do, traveling over the world, you know, it's a small a private club, I, I would say, and we all know because life can be over 
pretty short, you know. So we know what we are living in, we know we are, we are respecting each other, and that's where the friendship comes from. You're one of the few from that earlier era, the Group C era, that's, that's had that bridge to the modern WEC with your role with the Nürburgring race in particular. Tell me what your impressions are of these extraordinary cars. Yeah, I mean, from, from, from the sort of racing point, you know, when I speak to my friend Mark Weber, for example, he, for him, he says the best of the weekend, the five minutes of qualifying. Forget about all electronics, put everyone to the max, no engineer on the headphone, just balls out, you know. <laughs> that is that's the kind of difference, you know. Now it's a very technical sport where the driver, because there's so many, so many technically helping things, he can really concentrate on driving. We had to take care of everything. We had five or six or seven instruments in the car, oil pressure, water temperature, we have to check out. Forget about this. So, and because they have much more time now on concentrating on driving, this is where competition is so hard, you know. It's cool. Strange question to finish with here. If you could live it again, mm -hmm. would you choose your era or would you choose this era? Ah, this is a very difficult question, you know. You know, I, I would like to answer with a compromise. 50% that, 50% of this. <laughs> Understood, thank you okay, very much. My pleasure. Well, almost the final person I've caught up with at the FI Hall of Fame for the World Endurance Championship was the very first champion. Bob Garrett's of 1981, for me, doesn't seem that long ago. But it's a generation almost, almost ago. Almost 40 years ago. It is amazing, isn't it? Uh, you look like a man that's enjoyed his evening. Oh, very much. It, uh, how can you not? It's... We were surprised when we got this uh, email about this thing, you know, never heard about it, and uh, here we are, you know. Porsche 935, back in the day. Yes. A very different animal to the cars we're now seeing in the World Endurance Championship. Well, I don't, different in a, difficult in a different way, but I mean, it's still, you've got to be on the edge all the time, I mean, no matter what you're in, so... But yours was a time when the championship was being won by pro-am drivers, by pro-am teams, and we're yeah, sort yeah. of getting back to that now. Well, that's right. No, that's what we said, is we were the last independent uh, champion because, oh, like you say, it's all factory stuff now. If it isn't Porsche, it's Toyota or Audi or who knows, Jaguar. I don't know if they'll be back again, but uh, uh, no, it totally different. Well, the other thing I was trying to say but didn't get a chance on the interview was is that when the drivers had so much to do other than just drive the car. I mean, you had to be able to analyze what's wrong with it so when you pull in the pits, somebody could do something. Nowadays, it's you know, it's all on the screen up in the pit wall and uh, they can adjust the mixture and everything right from you know... We, 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 yeah. Anyway, it, it's just a different type of racing. Uh, can you still take pleasure in watching these guys in these spaceships? Oh yeah, no, it, it yeah, it knowing knowing what it feels like to hang on the edge and stuff like that. Yeah, you you know they're doing a hell of a job. Great stuff. Yeah, sir, it's a delight to see you over in Europe. Oh, cool. um, I'm sure we'll see you back in the, U uh, the U.S. I know that uh, my good friend Marshall Pruitt is keen to sit down with you and tell all the old stories okay. over a longer period of time. Yeah. Enjoy your evening and enjoy the flight back. Well, thank you. And uh, are you, you're out of England? You working? Are you out of England? Is that? That's our UK. Yes, right. We're, 
Uh, well, we'll be there in June next year. Oh, will you? Oh, wonderful stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep in touch. Try and enjoy the strawberries. Oh, quite right, too. <laughs> Thank you again to all of our guests who joined in, and in particular to Graham Goodwin and DailySportsCar.com for providing the bulk of this week's Inside the Sports Car Paddock offerings. Admittedly, and going forward, I'd love to say we will be back on a weekly posting routine. Just, I'll commit to this. I will do my best to post them as often as I can. Things continue to be and will remain to be fairly busy on the home front in the coming months so as we have interesting conversations to hold and offer might be following a race who knows we will certainly be back with inside the sports car paddock episodes and jeff is game and can't wait to do more to lead off with some sort of technical angle so we'll do our best and i do appreciate your patience and i hope that you enjoyed this We'll also mention if this is your first time listening, or if you are simply unaware, MarshallPruittPodcast.com is our home, where 700 plus episodes spanning open wheel racing and sports cars await your listening, hopefully pleasure. We also have every conceivable method of subscribing to the podcast, be it live streaming or straight downloading on a dedicated page there waiting for you. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Thank you for listening.